Charles Ignatius Sancho was an 18th century British abolitionist, composer, and writer whose life was cut way too short in his early 50s. Prior to that, his accomplishments included becoming the first British African to vote in Great Britain. Patterson Joseph is an award-winning actor of stage and screen who has spent years using his creative storytelling powers to spread Sancho's story to the public. First, with the play that he wrote and starred in called Sancho, An Act of Remembrance, and more recently with his first book titled The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, a novel. Patterson, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. So for those who are unfamiliar, because there are going to be a fair number of Americans in this audience who just don't know one way or the other, who exactly is Charles Ignatius Sancho? Well, whew, where do we begin? I think we should begin at the beginning, as my novel says. He was a man born on a slave ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean from the west coast of Africa in 1729. All the information that we have, the facts that we have, are from a preface written a couple of days after, a couple of years after he died, for a collection of his letters which come down to us. Which is extraordinary when you think about born on a slave ship and there's a collection of letters being printed a couple of years after his life. So what happened between those two events? Well, according to the biographer, a guy called Joseph Jekyll, he was born on that slave ship. He was orphaned by the time he was three. He was baptized Charles Ignatius in Colombia and then shipped at three years old to live with three spinsters in Greenwich, which is southeast of London. Royal Greenwich, as we say, quite a leafy suburb. So a massive difference between this Caribbean slave ports and leafy Greenwich. And there he is, treated as a pet. If you Google black people in portraiture, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of pictures of black kids, really, used as ornaments, standing there holding the master's gun or the mistress's tray of um, fruit or, you know, boring chocolate. So he was used as a sort of pet, an ornament. They refused to teach him to read. He ran away from home at seven years old, was found in a nearby park, a rather huge park, full of highwaymen, like the famous Dick Turpin. Uh, and he was found fortuitously by a man called John, Duke of Montague, who believed in a thing that sounds extraordinary now, but in the time it was quite a revolutionary idea. He believed in black intelligence and he could see that this kid was intelligent. He'd rescued other black people from slavery, um, but he thought this kid's got something. Took him back to the three ladies uh, who refused to teach him to read because they thought it would spoil him as they did with a lot of uh, black people and working class people. It would spoil them, they'd have ideas. And then he um, secretly gives him books, the Duke. And so this kid basically gets across the park every now and then, gets some books from the Duke, educates himself. By the time he's 19, ends up leaving these ladies, working for the Duke's family. The Duke worked for the royal family, so he's highly connected. Uh, by the end of his life, he was an accomplished musician and a composer, wrote books and reams and reams of music, pop music, jigs, reels, cotillions and music I call militantly joyful because they should have been sad music and heavy music, but he refused to do that. And there he is uh, now a shopkeeper at the age of about 40 odd. And because he owned a shop right next to Downing Street, which is, which is our seat of, of the prime minister, 
he was able to vote. There were no racist laws, didn't need to be. Who was going to have that much money? Hardly anybody could vote, only 2% of the population, all male, all white. Women weren't allowed to own property, so there he is, the first black man that we know of, the first man certainly of African descent to vote in a British parliamentary election, first in 1774 and then in 1780. And so when I found this story late in life, I was nearly 40 when I found this story, I thought, there's something in this. And, uh, and uh, 20 years later, here I am, uh, still writing about him. And you have spent a lot in the way of creative juices to help tell Sancho's story. You had a play that you started back in 2015 that you wrote and performed in called Sancho, An Act of Remembrance. And now you have this book as well. Uh, yeah. So what what was a connecting point for you personally with regards to the story when you first found out about it at the age of 40 that, want, that made you want to commit so much of yourself to helping spread the word to the rest of the world? Well, I guess there's two things to be said about it. One is his story is very similar to mine in that I was born and raised in the United Kingdom, but I constantly got this question all through, especially the early part of my life, where are you from? And so you'd say the area you were from in London, knowing that it was a kind of challenge to even say that. And then people would go, oh, no, 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 but where were you from originally? And you'd say another place in the same you know region that you were and then they go now where are your parents from and I would say which is true St Lucia which is in the Caribbean a British colony up until the 70s and then they would go ah satisfied you know and it was such a frustration to me and I couldn't find a history before the post-war influx of Caribbean immigrants who immigrants they were they were migrants in fact they were actually British citizens who'd come from the colonies to help out in the war relief post-war relief and I felt this sense of disjointure. And when I look at my son, he was, um, I started I started researching this in about, so I was about 36, 37, and I was wanting to have a child. And I was saying, if I have a son, if I have a daughter, what am I going to tell them? Am I going to have this have the same story? Where are you from? I'm from here. Where are you really from? Where are my grandparents are from? I actually thought, is there a British story that goes way back before 1948 and the famous Windrush, which is a ship that docked from, Jamaica to, uh, to to London and took in all the Caribbean islands, Barbados and ba Bahamas and and of course um, famously um, Saint Lucia, where my parents are from. And I thought, wh why can I if I could find a story predating that, it would help me certainly, and then that confidence would be bled through to my son. And and sure enough, I picked up a book by an American, um, a wonderful lady called Gretchen Gertziner, published as Black London in uh, America and Black England here, uh, re-published uh, uh, lately, and it's a fantastic book, updated and reissued. Black Black England taught me about Roman Britain, and I didn't know there were any Black people in, in, in Britain before 1948, remember, and I'm reading about Roman Britain, and I'm checking the back of this book to find out if it's written by some person who's not very, you know, not okay, you know, maybe they're just <laughs> desperate. Is this a legitimate publication? And there, this Professor Gazina. Holbrook, she, she's a friend of mine now, forgive me, but I, I I had reached an age where I couldn't believe I didn't know this information. All the way through to Henry VIII's court, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, Shakespeare's Queen's court, there were that many black people that there was a decree saying there were too many black people cluttering up the country, that's why the economy is tanking, we must get rid of them, sounds familiar. Um, and then here's this portrait, um, it's too dark here to see, but it stands above my uh, my dining table constantly. It's a Gainsborough, and it's of this incredible man 
in a bright red waistcoat, gold braiding, beautifully coiffured hair, looking off, hand in his waistcoat, as if he's a man of leisure. And I think, who the hell is this? And and that's what that's made me feel so sort of powerfully connected with this country that there was this deep story of a man who had family and brought up kids and his kids again extraordinary um you know girls mainly and they could read they could write and i see them in the british library their letters amazing their son who became a librarian and to the the duke of montague and other great houses who who worked at the new vaccine pock institute here in bloomsbury looking at uh, taking cowpox to help cure smallpox. I mean, just an extraordinary uh, story that connects me to British history uh, in, a, in a way that uh, was very powerful for me. And you put a unique spin on telling this story, essentially trying to fill in the blanks for very general details or very general information rather known about Sancho's life, especially early in life. You talked a little bit ago about the uh, posthumous diaries that were printed uh, upon his death in, I believe, 1780, the letters of the late Ignatius Sancho, an African. Uh, just how much of a blueprint did this serve for you in an attempt to realistically fictionalize, uh, fictionalize the details of Sancho's life? Well, this is what they call the epistolary art. It's the art of letter writing, and it really is a performance. And I always think about the, the portrait as a performance. Gainsborough was performing this painting, Sancho's performing within the painting. These letters are what he called conversable. That meant they were like conversation pieces. Very few people could read or write, Trey. So if you sent a letter, you were pretty guaranteed that the man or the woman of the household was going to read it, you know, at the hearth to their family. So you better be careful what you wrote, you know. If you were going to say something rude, you're going to have to couch it in some sort of jokey terms so that the, that the kids wouldn't get it, you know. So there's a public performance bit of it. But actually what it gave me was kind of the way he spoke, because there's lots of dashes and uh, elisions. And, you know, we don't quite know where he's going. And then he spins off into another sort of uh, cul-de-sac of a, of, a, of a thought. And then he'd go back to the subject and there'll be jokes and made up words. And he's sort of imitating, if you like, the style of a guy called Lawrence Stern, who wrote a thing called Tristram Shandy. And if anybody out there has read Tristram Shandy, I need to give you a free book. Because it's not that it's not a great book, it is. It's one of the first comic novels in the English language, but it's devilishly hard to read. Because he starts off the birth of Tristram Shandy and we never get anything for 500 odd pages except stories about other characters. And Sancho adopts a bit of that style. New Stern, wrote to Stern, Stern writes, um, is a pastor and he writes anti-slavery pamphlets long before the anti-slavery movement has really got going and they become great friends and Sancho imitates that style so I took some of that style and then what I wanted to do because the one person show the monodrama as they call them was also public facing I imagined him being painted uh, by Gainsborough in the studio and like studios in those days they might have a few guests and the audience is those, are those guests, and I talk to them about who I am. And then he's in his store, and we come to visit him, and he tells us he's about to vote, talks to us publicly. And the public vote was always uh, at the hustings, as they call them, kind of platform, the public show of hands. So again, public, painting is public, letters are public, players are So the, the, the novel for me was about taking his voice, that outward voice, and that, thinking about how that would be, like I, I'm an actor, by trade, my day job, 
And what we do is we sort of hot seat our characters. So if I'm playing, you know, for example, um, I'll take an American show because people might know it, um, a show I did called Timeless, which was a time travel show I did for NBC. And I asked myself the question, so who are you? And I'd say, well, my name's Connor, and I've had this amazing idea about how to generate enough power to well, actually send us through time. And why do you want to do it? Because I want to be the guy who invented time travel. So whilst you're doing whatever's scripted, you have an undercurrent, something underneath, subtext, as we call it. But what is that in a monologue? Well, that's usually silent. But actually, I wanted to just open his open his thoughts to us. And so the diary, which is based on his voice, is fictional, but it's it's really my immersion in him. If you read it, you'll see that my immersion in him as a character, as if I was speaking out um, from within that character, speaking his inner thoughts. And it's directed towards his son. Um, who's just been born and he knows that he won't see him grow because he knows he's already ill with the the gout and the complications that would kill him at 51. Uh, and he has sort of five years to collate these letters. So there's a kind of time pressure. Uh, and, and he also has to answer questions like, why did I sell slave goods? He had a grocery store. He had a grocery store right next to Parliament. What's he going to sell? He couldn't just sell vegetables. He had to sell coffee. He had to sell tobacco and uh, sugar and tea and of course uh, rum etc so so there's a compromise there so i wanted him to answer that question which i wasn't able to in the in the monologue so it's a story of a man who triumphs but it's also a story of a man who needs to acknowledge his own faults and foibles and there are many he's a flawed hero my favorite kind <laughs> i love the flawed hero too and i'm glad you just talked about that because Obviously, you don't want to spoil too much, this being a novel, even though everybody knows how it ends. I want to encourage people to read this book, but there mm -hmm. was a very emotional point, uh, I want to say about a, a quarter to a third of the way in this book, that had to do with Sancho dealing with death for the very first time, or I guess consciously dealing with death. His parents obviously perished when he was young, but he was too young to really understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but in writing about how he's dealing with this first major death in his life, are you pulling from your own experience from dealing with death and trying to write about it? Well, I mean, uh, any anybody over the age of 45 is pretty much dealing with death. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we meditate on it quite a bit, and I have I have for most of my life. Especially um, when I, you have kids. I, oh, my gosh, yeah, they, they do. They're wonderful. They're blessings. But they also <laughs> make you think, wow, where's the conveyor belt? It's coming soon. <laughs> I, I feel like um, the meditation on, on on death that I that I go through with Sancho is partly a cathartic thing for me. Thinking that through, I'm very fortunate to be of an age that I and, and at this age and still have my parents who are alive and very well. Um, but but that day is coming, and the fact that uh, John Montague, who who is the character who who he has to face his death, uh, is his sort of father, really the only father he's ever known is uh was moved me to think of because it was a real event uh, and also at a time of crises for him he was coming of age he was 21 and so that that thing of when we pass uh on the baton to our children uh, uh, that moment where you as the child realize that it's now you your it's your responsibility so there's there was both melancholy in it but also a slightly selfish what do i do now with this but this this 
truth, which means that I'm now exposed to the world. There's there's no one to protect me. It's just me. So it, it has a mixture in it, and I and I hope it's affecting because I think it's universal. Um, and, and there's many incidences as well as love, you know, in the story. There's lots of love in the story too, where where I do draw from my life. I think the biggest thing I've discovered lately was there's a moment where Sancho says to his son right at the beginning of the book, "Know thy father, and forgive him." And I think, wow. Uh, I seem to remember my dad when I was about 14 or so. He'd be watching the television and he'd just switch it off and start telling me stories of his life back in St. Lucia and his dreams and his hopes and his aspirations. And there seemed to be no reason for this. He was quite a tough guy back in those days. But he just seemed to launch into it. My mum would come back from working at the hospital and say, can you just let the boy go to bed? He's got school tomorrow. (laughs) But this idea of the compulsion to tell our children who we are very common oh when i was a kid we used to oh dad that's boring we don't want to hear that oh when we were children oh mom stop i've heard it all before but even though we might joke about it and it is quite casual there is something about the you don't know who i am you know father you know mom but you don't know me um and that's in this that's in the story too i think I'm the father of an eight and six year old right now. And one, it's very difficult not to offer unsolicited advice or unsolicited (laughs) stories to your kids, but it can also be a worthwhile tool if you are deploying it at the right time. So if your child is struggling with something and you say, you know what, when I was your age, I struggled with this in this capacity. Oftentimes that'll cause my kids ears to perk up and they'll often come back later on telling me, Dad, tell me more about the time you got in trouble in school or the time that this or this happened. So, yes, uh, I see that. I see that. You're you're obviously very good at telling the story, too, but also gauging when to come in. I mean, I think when they get to be teenagers, the, the, the most the best advice I've ever got was don't tell them anything unless they ask because they really don't want you to be telling them anything unless they want you to be there, but they don't want you to appear to be there. (laughs) <laughs> so so it gets a little trickier later but but i think that compulsion is right and and it is good and it's so often too late when we think god i didn't know my dad that well i didn't know that bit about him or some uncle or some older relative or some friend says oh did you know your dad did this or did you know your mum did this it suddenly opens up a whole world of a picture of who your parents are and that, that's definitely bleeds through the story Well, you're also right about letting your kids come to you, which seems to be an impossibility for many in this current age, the era of the helicopter parents, where we are afraid to let our kids fail. But that's so important. And that maybe speaks to the next question that I have for you, because this is the first book that you've written. So question one is, how much did you enjoy the process? And question two is, because this is something that is completely foreign to you, and you having to step well outside of your comfort zone to accomplishment uh, to accomplish it. What did you learn, either about yourself or otherwise, from completing it? Wow, these are great questions. Um, it was a labor of about twenty years' love, of course. So it wasn't as if I was dragging it out of nowhere. It had been a compulsion. Again, that word keep coming back. Compulsion of mine to tell a a deeper story of Sancho because I had that monologue, which is 75 minutes long, kind of sketchy. So I thought, how do I get deeper? And so that was the only way. I was lucky enough, uh, Trey, to have, and well, I say lucky, I mean, the world was going through terrible things, but I had a job on a show, 
that I was doing for the BBC called Vigil, which is set on a submarine. Um, and uh, that that was that was all encompassing. It was really a thing that you couldn't I couldn't think of anything else um, but that. And we were doing that. And then in 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 February, we started mid-March, six weeks in, sort of an episode and a bit in, we had to stop. We had this the first hiatus of the first lockdown, which for us was like March to August. And that thing in the back of my head around about April, May was like, if you don't start, if you don't write this thing now, you will never have time to write this thing. If you're going to write a novel about this, you've got to do it now. So I sat in, it's too dark for you to see now, my shed come office in the back of this garden, uh, mainly, I would say in my pajamas, <laughs> for about four months writing. Uh, was it in? enjoyable most days it was some days I looked at myself and I went you look like a hermit and you need to do something about this because you're actually an actor you're gonna have to be in the public at some point um but I, I, what time is it I don't know I've just been writing oh it looks like it's dawn you should probably go to bed you know that that I did for about four months intensively and so I enjoyed the, the isolation and I enjoyed the intensity of that but what was tough was at some point realizing that there was so much story in my head that I needed to get it out of my head somehow. I didn't know quite how. And so I got a big whiteboard and I put bunches of paper. It looked like a sort of, you know, when you see it in these crime movies and somebody's obsessed with a case and they've just, you go into their room like, oh, and they've got this big board and they've got all the pictures and the bits of ribbon going from one thing to another. It sort of looked like, I took a picture of it. It looks quite specialist, I would say, uh, tiny writing. Uh, and I thought, this is worrying. But actually, once I got it out, I could enjoy it again because I, could, I realized it was like critical mass in my head. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, what, what did I learn? I think I've, I really learned that the beauty of the novel is that it is the purest form of storytelling. So we got symbols on a page that become if I can decipher them, pictures in my mind that become memories. I mean, I think of novels I read when I was 13, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, Picture of Dorian Gray, which I read when I was about 15. These are pictures in my head that will not shift. They're not movies. Um, they are in my brain because of these squiggles on a page. No voice, no actor, no decor, no set dresser, no director no music, no underscore, no John Williams, no nothing, nothing. But that picture formed by that word in my head is the purest form of storytelling. And, and I honestly, my reverence for, for the written word has grown actually, even after you know half a century of, of you know, 40 odd years rather of, um, of, of reading avidly. What's the key to a good story? I think intimacy, hmm. I say it quickly because I, I think, again, that's where I'm at right now. I think intimacy. I think the key to a good story is to make me think I'm right there with you and you're thinking it through as I'm thinking it through and you're telling me as if it's fresh and I'm hearing it fresh. And, and, and intimacy also dictates a kind of uh, sensuality. And by that, I don't mean anything salacious. I really mean the senses. That, that it's a sensory experience, that you smell Dickens' London, that you smell the poorhouse, 
where Oliver works, that you see uh, Mr. Bumble leaning over him more, you know, you see that and hear the sounds of London and Fagin's raspy voice and you taste the gruel and everything about it, you know, the feel of, of the cloth, the feel of the silk handkerchief that he pulls out of the man's uh, pocket. Everything about it should bring me alive in, in the best experiences. It should, be, it should be sensual, really, I think. And I think intimacy also leads the audience member to caring more about the characters for better or worse, too. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, I've read books. Uh, I'm one of those people, if I start a book, I have to finish it pretty much. Very rarely that I've, I've not finished a book. But I have read one or two books where I thought, I don't like anybody in this story. Uh, I don't even like the author. I, I don't like where they're taking this story or why Why am I hearing this story? It's an awful story about a, a, um, a man who becomes a, a, a guard in a, in, a, in a concentration camp. And because the voice was only his uh, and the author didn't seem to understand the person, it was a sort of nihilistic and very long novel, I, I found myself sort of repulsed by it and I think I don't know why that would be a thing that I that you'd write like what is, what is the benefit of that and maybe other people will say well you're just too soft and you want things to be so it isn't really that it's like I don't I think you you have a responsibility if you're taking that up that much time somebody's time that there is a reason for doing it that isn't simply I'm going to disgust you or I'm going to make you feel really awful about humanity I think there's got to be a deeper uh, a, a deeper reason if even if it's a touch of healing or distance or, or an acceptance of our all of our you know foibles or faults yeah i abhor that feeling as a reader and i'll usually give a book 100 pages if i get 100 pages in and i'm flipping ahead to see how much longer before the next major break the next part or whatever or i'm just counting the pages to the end then I just have to put it down. And I hate that. I hate that for the author who didn't do a good enough job of captivating my attention. And I hate that as somebody who does take a lot of time to mm -hmm. try and decipher the words on those pages that you just so eloquently talked about. And see, I mean, I read it on um, a Kindle, which I've never done since. It put me off. I because then I'm saying, I couldn't do the flick through, you see. I couldn't go, well, there's only 700 pages of this to go. There's only 400 it was just like location one seven five four nine six four of how many and what does that mean can i just see the if i could just see the inches i can help it will help me no it was like endless it was endless <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on the kindles or the uh, e-readers by the way I, I do it out of necessity if i absolutely have to and preparing for an author conversation but the physical copy wins out every time, but we've learned that lesson over and over again with just about everything over the last three years, Patterson, whether we're talking about books or meetings and look, I'm fortunate that we get to have this conversation via zoom. This would be a better conversation in person or concerts or stand up or theater or festivals or school or work, or you name it. The yes. real life in-person version blows away the digitized version. That is absolutely true. I would stand on that. Absolutely. I'd, I would I would die on that hill with you. Do you mind if I ask you a couple quick questions about your acting career? Because I am a fan, no, I'm a big fan of your work and a couple of things in particular. So the, no, first, of course, right. the first, thank you. The first is uh, a an HBO series 
that was filmed for the most part here in the Austin and Central Texas area, and that would be The Leftovers. Now, you were only a part of the very beginning of The Leftovers, but that is one of the most spellbinding performances I've ever watched on screen. So my first question for you based on that is, were you actually here in Texas filming that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I... uh... That's extraordinary. I mean, I, that's lovely, <laughs> lovely thing to say. I was uh, always a fan of American TV since I was a kid, uh, but I'd never worked on an American set. So, uh, or in America. So here I was doing this first job and I met probably one of the most charismatic uh, directors I've ever encountered, a guy called Peter Berg. Mm-hmm. Uh, famous, I suppose, on television for Friday Night Lights. But but Peter, <laughs> Peter, when I first met him, sort of mesmerized me a little bit. And I and I think I often steal from directors because that when they express who they think the character is, I often steal that because they've been living with it for two years, some of them, you know. So I'm sure I got some of that. But there was also a strange thing that he did that I'd never experienced before. So I was sitting with an actor called Brad, and I can't remember Brad's surname. Um, but you, anybody could could easily uh, Google Google it or IMDb it. So Brad, my, it's my first scene. I'm sitting in again my pajamas. There's a theme here uh, <laughs> with, with an open uh, sort of uh, robe, and I have no lines. It's my first scene. I have no lines. So I sit there as Holy Wayne, this man who people come to because people don't know the show. They're traumatized by the fact that people have left the planet. They disappeared overnight. Nobody knows what's happened. This is four years later. And people are desperate and and emotionally uh, sort of constipated. And they can come to Holy Wayne, they think, and he can help them somehow. Uh, and I don't think initially we know how he helps them. It's We find out it's because he can, he has a touch. He has some sort of touch that he can do. Anyway, this guy comes and Brad walks into the room as I sit there, quite neutrally, sits there. And he says, can you help me, man? And I'm just there looking at him, expecting to hear cut at any moment and nothing came. So I'm staring at Brad, Brad staring at me. And then you hear this voice coming from downstairs who were in this strange cabin place, you know. Brad, can you come in again? But don't walk it, don't walk, just stay there. Patterson, can you imagine him coming in? And I, a part of me went, what? And then I went, no, just go with it. And so I do this thing and you'll see it. I'm. I'm watching a ghost because he's sitting there and I'm watching him come in. So, of course, that's a strange look already. And then he's then I, I get him to sit like in my imagination. And then he says, can you help me, man? And then Brad gets him to sort of swear the line, you know, say a few expletives in it. And he asks me desperately and I'm meant to be neutral. So that was my very first experience on, a, on an American film. So I was like, ooh. So that every scene after that was a bit like, ooh. And then Carrie Coon, who I do a scene, an extraordinary scene with, and I know, and if you watch it, the scene is extraordinary because of Carrie Coon. I am meant to embrace her. She comes to me and I'm meant to just embrace her and she releases whatever it is that's been in her spirit and her soul. And listen, there's no sparks, there's nothing, there's no special effects. It's just a thing that happens between two human beings. And she comes to me and already as I see her eyes, I think, wow, what's going on with this woman? And she comes in for the hug and I feel like something goes into me and out of her 
and it's it's a physical thing as in she's released some emotion but physically into me and I just react as you would in a sort of surprise and shock and and you want to care but at the same time you're going what is this and that's what you're seeing so it's probably a good performance because I'm just reacting in a pure sense to actually what's happening um, and, and it was it was all the way through it was like that every single scene my scenes with Chris Zilka were like that as well it's like we're just looking at each other and sort of finding what is what am I looking at who am I looking at properly looking at another person is quite powerful uh, on screen um, yeah so that's that's probably why that's a decent performance if I'm remembering properly, chronologically, the bathroom scene was the last scene that you had in that show. Is that correct? Yeah, the bathroom scene with um, amazing Justin uh, Theroux. Uh, yeah, 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 it was. See, uh, you keep saying Carrie and Justin did, did an amazing job, and they did. Don't get me wrong, but you uh, you shined as bright as, uh, nice, as the stars of that series, it. man. And that, uh, so that bathroom scene was so emotional. When you get done with a scene like that, are you feeling pretty good about yourself because you know deep down that you've done a good job? Or are you having to snap yourself back to reality in a, in a moment like that just because you had to reach to such emotional depths? Yeah. I've, I, you know, I, I remember being more and more um, sort of relaxed as we got there. I mean, we did several takes, but when it felt like we got there, you sort of relax a bit, which is not a bad thing. I don't think you should relax totally. There's always a sort of... There should always be a sort of tension, I think. But, but we sort of relaxed knowing that we've gotten really some good takes. And then you sort of open up. And actually, what can happen then, I, and it, it, I have to learn this lesson time and time again every time I do a thing, is that sometimes when you've rehearsed something and you know something very well, the thing to do is to throw it all out and just blank yourself. Because it will all be there, but maybe something new will come. So I think some of our best takes, Justin and I um, had, were after we had done it a few times and we would really hit that emotional height, you know, and then we just let it go. And um, yeah, there's some, some beautiful things. It was like the best death. Uh, sorry to spoil uh, best death ever, but there, there's Damon Lindelof said to me when we finished it, death. I mean, in the world of leftovers, what is death? <laughs> Which is like a really enigmatic thing to end on. And uh, sure enough, he had some flashbacks for me and some dream sequences to come. Okay. And so the other show that I wanted to ask you about, I'm pretty sure I remember you being in your PJs in at least one or two episodes is one of my all-time favorite sitcoms, Peep Show. You talked a little bit about storytelling earlier. The yeah. visual storytelling style in this uh -huh. show, it was and still is so unique where <laughs> it goes first person with a camera with uh, with actors in the scene at times. Yeah, It was a well-written show. The dysfunctional is off the charts, hilarious. Was that a fun show to get to work on in the role of Johnson? Yeah, I mean, somebody very nicely uh, tweeted uh, today. I didn't like it because it felt very vain. Um, but they were saying that, because um, <laughs> it was written by Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong. Now, Jesse Armstrong, of those who don't know, is the writer of Succession, uh, who, which I'm sure you, if you haven't seen it, you will at least know about it. I did not realize that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So somebody, somebody tweeted, Johnson, the character I play in, in Peep Show, could easily just walk onto the set of Succession. Well, I, I, that's a lovely compliment, but I don't think so. Because uh, <laughs> the, what they write, <laughs> what they write is a sort of extreme boss. 
He's like the ultimate horrible boss, but he has a sort of deathly charm about him, but simply because he's a sociopath and he has no human feelings whatsoever. <laughs> and I don't know why, but that seems to be attractive to people. I used to watch it and cringe and go, I can't watch this. In fact, I, for years, I didn't even watch it, really. I couldn't. It was just too painful. I enjoyed doing it, but I couldn't bear the pain of watching two losers be so losery and really admire someone who's an horrible human being. And uh, the people who came to me were often students. Uh, and what's so strange about the show is it was on very late at night on a, on a channel we have here called Channel 4, which is sort of quite um, out there channel. Uh, way back in 2000 and, must have been 2003, my son had just been born, he's 20. And uh, he, we had this thing where it was shown at 10.30 at night, shown at 11 at night. It was such a weird looking show. We always look in the camera, it's called POV in its original uh, version. Uh, and then they switched it to Peep Show. And we've got this voiceover. So whatever I'm saying, you know, I might be saying, hey, Trey, nice to see you. And then my head's like, ah, I bet he thinks he's a wonderful man. Look at him with his lovely beard and his lovely blue eyes. I hate him. So what are you doing today? You know, it's, it's, it's got that. So it's like our inner thoughts exposed. It's really painful to watch. And, and it was so sort of ugly, the show, that I think it just lost people. And because they moved it around the schedule. So it was only... About a year later, we were not, we thought it was done. About a year later, when people from what we call the student union, which is, you know, basically the bar at late at night, would come back on a Friday night and they decided there was nothing in the schedule that they could fit, but they put this on at 11 o'clock regularly on a Friday night. And that was the first blogging sort of sensation. So the audience blogged about that online. There wasn't any of the big social media, really, not as powerfully as there, there was later. But that's what everybody was blogging about it, saying this is an amazing show, you should watch this show. It became a sort of quiet cult hit amongst students. And then they brought it back. And then we started gathering momentum. I don't think we've ever had a huge audience, but it's gone everywhere. First time I was ever recognized in America, I was in Columbus, Ohio hmm. in 2012. So it was like nine years after the show had started doing Julius Caesar for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And somebody went, are you, are you, are you Patterson Joseph? Are you never get name checked. You never get name checked. I was like, yeah, I was just coming out of some Whole Foods store in, in Columbus. And he went, you're Johnson. You're Johnson from Peep Show. I was like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was surprised. Yeah, I am. I mean, and he went, yeah, it's great. What are you doing here? I'm like, oh, we're doing a show. Man. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. So it's a kind of strange strange beast but it's 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 had a new life as well the new students new young people are seeing it it's very it, um gratifying was it hard to act pov to look straight into the camera and essentially have a conversation with the camera yeah it was it was i mean what's hard is you've got david mitchell who's a wonderful actor who i did a lot of my stuff with standing there and he's so compelling that we just sort of look at each other and go oh no we can't do that i have to do it. so we ended up <laughs> in fact they should have filmed the filming ended up hiding behind the cameraman who was often handheld in the handheld camera moving man. So he had to hide behind the cameraman and then you just not make eye contact with him. So you end up with that slightly starey, strange thing down the lens. And it, it, it is in itself quite a giggle fest when, when you're 
saying funnies, they're saying funnies, you can't see anybody and you're just staring at your own reflection because that's all you can see when you look down the barrel of a big camera, <laughs> you see your own reflection. Um, so yeah, it was it was tricky that, but it I never laughed on a film set so much. And there's one particular, if anybody knows, there's one particular scene, I talk about it a bit, but it's when, because <laughs> Johnson's quite strange, he's got some strange uh, ways and he doesn't like disease or weakness. Uh, and and at some point he comes, he needs to take Mark to Frankfurt for a conference, um, which of course he pronounces Frankfurt, which led to much laughter around the table. And we couldn't do that scene for about 14 takes because he pronounced it in his weird mid-Atlantic strange way. Oh, uh, see, and, that, that's something that went over my head. I know. I don't no, no, but that, that, that. because we got through it. We got through it. We got through it. But they, But everybody else in the room was just gone. I was like, you're not helping me. Um, but he, I burst in and Superhands, one of the losers that live in the house, has bashed the door of the toilet down uh, in panic and paranoia. So there's no toilet door, but Mark's got some terrible bowel uh, problems and he's sitting on the toilet and they've painted David green, basically. He looks green and he's leaning, brilliantly leaning, and they've made his eyes red as well, leaning against the, the door, the wall, you know, he's on the toilet seat and leaning against the wall. I know it sounds disgusting, no, no actual um, things happened in there. It was all acting, but I'm looking, I'm looking at this man who makes me laugh anyway. A good friend of mine now, but it just makes me laugh anyway. And I say to him this line, which I couldn't get out for, I would say, more takes than a professional should. Is that normal pooing you're doing, Mark? <laughs> you know I don't like illness. And you, is that normal pooing you're doing? It took me so long. You know that point. I don't know if people know that point where we call it corpsing, which is laughing when you shouldn't do. But you're corpsing so badly that you continue to corpse and the crew are now over it and they're looking at, they're basically going, right, now let's go. Now we've done that 10 times, now let's, come on. It's only one like, I like, it makes it worse. It's like being in school and somebody going, you're not allowed to laugh now, this is a serious science lesson and it just sets you off. So it was painful, funny and joyful and I only ever did a few days each season, but um, yeah, the, the best fun I've ever had on a film set ever. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, that series has achieved cult status now. So uh, <laughs> to hear that you guys were having, even though it was painful at times, you were having uh, as much fun and laughing at some of those jokes harder than anybody who got to watch it uh, all these years later. That's, uh, that's yeah. a great joy to hear. He is Patterson Joseph. The new book is The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, a novel. You get it now wherever books are sold. Patterson, thank you so much for the time today. Really great with this book, and I uh, hope we have uh, an opportunity to speak at some point in the future. Yes, please. Thank you for that. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Check out more of his... Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for checking us out. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.